I'm David Goldstein, Senior Fellow at Civic Ventures. If you're a regular listener of Pitchfork Economics, you know that we've talked a bit about how weird this economy is right now, how different our inflation is from past inflations, how bizarre it is to have people talking about recession in the midst of uh, record low unemployment and record high uh, job reports. And uh, there's a lot of reasons why this might be happening. One of them that we feel hasn't gotten enough attention, at least from the economic perspective, is the impact of long COVID. Perhaps tens of millions of Americans have uh, in the past or are now suffering from long COVID symptoms, and it's surely had an impact on the uh, labor shortage we've been experiencing and the economy as a whole. How much an impact has not been clear, but there's actually some new numbers out and a new report by a previous Pitchfork Economics guest, Katie Bach at the Brookings Institute. And we're really fortunate to talk with Katie today about long COVID, its economic impact, and its very real impact on quality of life. My name is Katie Bach. I am a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, where I research topics related to job quality, low-wage work, and increasingly long COVID. Well, thank you for coming back. Uh, we talked to you, I believe it was January. I lose track of time. There's no time in, in the era of COVID anymore. It all runs together. And uh, at the time, we were talking about why companies can't self-regulate their way to inclusive capitalism. And in our conversation, the issue of long COVID came up and uh, there was the question of whether it was worsening the labor shortage and nobody really knew at the time, but there is new data. Could you uh, tell us a bit about what we've learned? Absolutely. So at the end of 2021, someone asked me what I thought the impact of long COVID on the labor market was. And I was like, honestly, probably nothing. I mean, I, I just can't imagine it's big enough to, to, to even be a blip. Um, but the question got stuck in my head. So I used best available data back in 2021 to, to make an estimate. And I estimated that somewhere around 1.5 million full-time equivalent workers we're not working due to long COVID. And the whole point of the piece was to call on data collection agencies like you know, the Census Bureau to start collecting data on this. So fast forward to June, the Census Bureau and the CDC put long COVID questions onto this survey called the Household Pulse Survey. And it's a survey that uh, was launched at the beginning of the pandemic to understand the pandemic's impact on Americans. And they asked questions specifically about long COVID, long COVID prevalence. So, so essentially, who has had COVID symptoms, long COVID symptoms, for three months or more that are new since they, since they were infected with COVID today? And what we learned from the survey is about 8% of working age Americans fall into this long COVID category. So that's about 16.3 million. That's big. Extraordinarily big. I mean, 
this is this is significantly higher than what I estimated back at, at the end of 2021. But then of course the question is, okay, but how many of them can't work? Because technically you could answer yes to that household pulse question because you haven't regained a sense of smell. And while that's incredibly frustrating and difficult to deal with, it might not stop, it's not gonna stop you from working unless you're like a food taster. And this is where kind of we run into a data challenge again nobody's really asking that question on any of the big surveys. The question of, is long COVID interfering with your day-to-day life? So I used kind of the best estimates that I could find on the percentage of people with long COVID who are out of work. And my estimate is that we've got somewhere between two to 4 million full-time equivalent workers out of the labor force right now due to long COVID. So, so when we say full-time equivalent workers, we mean that's that's the equivalent of two to four million full-time equivalent positions. It's likely a larger number of people, and some of them are part-time or exactly. missing. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So it's millions of people. It's it's a it's affecting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so two point four million. Let's talk about as a percentage of the economy, the percentage of workers, how much that's potentially costing us each year. Yeah, and again, these are these are fairly startling numbers. So let's just take the midpoint of the range, 3 million. And let's say we've got about 3 million full-time equivalent workers fully out of work due to long COVID. That would be about 1.8% of the entire civilian labor force. Um, the annual cost of just lost wages, so not lower productivity, not uh, healthcare costs, not the costs of caregivers who've had to give up some of their work, just the lost wages from these people would be about $170 billion a year. And, and on the high end, it's- It's about uh, 230. 230. And that is about 1% of GDP just in lost wages. Exactly. And so I think the, you know, looking at that number- <laughs> I mean, first of all, if I'm even, I think I had kind of two takeaways from this number, right? Um, One is we really, really need better data collection still. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is a, this is better than I was able to do before, but we really need questions about long COVID's impact on work on the current population survey, which is the big survey that gives us all of our like unemployment, employment, labor force statistics. And it's a really robust longitudinal survey. So that's point one. Like, this is a big enough problem. We've got to be collecting better data. But point two for me is, let's say that the lower end of my range is a 100% overestimate, right? Let's say I am really far off. We would still be talking about $50 billion a year in lost wages. So to me, the, the takeaway is like, look, we, we need better data, but by kind of any reasonable estimate, this is a major societal problem, which means we've got to start taking mitigation measures. Are other countries uh, doing a better job collecting data and uh, are the re- their findings comparable with uh, your estimates? So the UK is the, the other country I spent a little bit of time looking at. And the UK is doing a much better job than we are. Their Office of National Statistics is 
tracking long COVID prevalence, and, and by long COVID, I believe they're using the three-month definition as well, lingering symptoms. But what they're doing that we're not is they're asking, is this interfering with your life? Is it interfering with your life at all, with your daily activities? And then they ask the question, is it interfering or limiting your daily activities a lot? And so we actually know that about 0.6% of the British population says that long COVID is interfering with their daily activities a lot. And, you know, comparable number in the U.S. would be about 2 million people. Right. So it's a, right in your range there. So there's no reason to expect that your, your 2 to 4 million range is, is out of whack. No, not when looking at other countries. You know, the, yeah. where it gets a little tricky is when you look at U.S. labor data. And let's like, if we were really at 4 million people, I would expect a bit of a stronger signal in the labor data. There is some, right? We're, we're about a percentage point of labor force participation below where we should be. And, you know, there's a lot going on right now in the labor force. So for example, the participation rate of disabled Americans has actually gone up and probably because of remote work. And mm -hmm. so you've got these like weird net effects, right? Where like, yeah, you have people dropping out because of long COVID. You potentially have about half a million people going in because suddenly work is accessible to them. So, so I want to bookmark that and, and get back to that point uh, in a moment. Um, I just want to finish up the, the, the conversation about the economic cost first, because of course, lost wages aren't the only costs of of long COVID. There's been some other estimates that show a, a much higher cost in terms of treating uh, the, the medical costs. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I am trying to stay in what is like mostly my lane, which is uh -huh. just talking about the wage numbers. There is a really well-known and well-respected health economist at Harvard, uh, Professor David Cutler, who recently put out a more comprehensive estimate and so he looks at a five-year cost compared to the, the annual cost I'm looking at. And he finds his, his, the reduced earnings, which is my lost wages over five years, he finds is about a trillion dollars. In other words, you know, 200 billion a year. So completely, you know, right in line with my estimate. But actually the bigger costs are one, reduced quality of life and, you know, it's not a it's not a cash cost for the U.S. economy, but it is something that health economists do tend to consider. And and and, and, and let's be clear, we'll pause here and, and make this comment that we make a lot on this podcast that actually quality of life is the yeah. whole purpose of economics. Exactly. So if we're exactly. having an economic conversation, even if you can't put a dollar value on it, it it's still what really matters. <laughs> and you know, taking a quick moment on that, I will tell you. Since I published this, you know, a lot of long COVID patients have reached out with their stories and it is devastating. You know, these are people who some of them are, you know, in the early stages of their career who now can't mm -hmm. go to graduate school. Some of them are young parents who now can't look after their children. You have, you know, 50 year olds who were kind of at the prime of their career and looking forward to retirement who are now stuck in bed. I mean, the human cost is devastating. And so where, where Professor Cutler ends up is over five years, you're at about uh, $2.2 trillion. And then finally, he looks at medical spending. 
and he comes up with a little over a hundred billion dollars a year. And and what he what he doesn't have in here is the lost productivity of caregivers. And I will tell you, a lot of the people who've reached out are telling me not just what the impact is on them, but on their partners, on their parents, on their children who now have to look after them. So by any measure, I mean, we're talking about a number that you can express as a percentage of GDP, which is kind of insane. So this is this is big in terms of the number, the, the, the millions of Americans it impacts the hundreds of billions of dollars a year in costs, the quality of life, the reduction in quality of life, not just for people suffering from long COVID, but from their their their, their caregivers, their family members. Uh, so you'd think it'd be a bigger issue than just people talking about, uh, oh, I haven't regained my sense of smell yet. But I'm going to go back to this 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 um, comment you made about how people with disabilities have seen their uh, workforce participation increase, this suggests that there are things we can do to better reintegrate people with long COVID back into the workforce, that there, there are policies that we can do to mitigate this, not just prevention, uh, but actually addressing the people with long COVID what are we looking at? What what are the most promising uh, uh, policy initiatives out there? First and foremost, we have to get these people access to good treatment. There is so much we don't know about this disease, but we do know that there are people who with like the right medical treatment are able to regain some percentage of their function, sometimes even a large percentage. To get people the right treatment, we really need two things. One, we need more research, um, more clinical trials. You know, the US government dedicated about a billion dollars through the NIH to, to long COVID research, which sounds really great, but then you consider even the bottom end of my range, and we're talking about a hundred billion dollars in just lost wages. And at that point, one billion starts to sound like really not enough. So research, uh, to speed up clinical trials and then to figure out what kind of treatments actually work. Two, I mean, right now there are like a handful of physicians who treat this. A lot of them don't take insurance because insurance is really not designed for you to spend an hour with every patient. Like you need to with a chronic complex condition like this. And so we need to somehow get thousands of physicians trained to actually treat these people so that they can access insurance-covered healthcare and, and hopefully improve enough to get back to work. Uh, is the healthcare industry, and by that I'm, I'm including the insurance industry, are they taking this seriously? Because uh, the, the whole conversation over long COVID reminds me of the early stages of the public conversation over things like Lyme disease mm -hmm. and chronic fatigue syndrome, where... Uh, there wasn't a consensus that it was a real thing. So I have talked to a lot of patients who were diagnosed with post-viral conditions pre-COVID, right? So people who, or I should say post-infectious, right? Because that includes chronic Lyme. Um, but people who, who have this label of ME-CFS or chronic fatigue syndrome. And I think there is absolutely no doubt that society writ large, including healthcare providers, are taking this a lot more seriously than they ever took any of those conditions. I mean, frankly, 
those conditions were mocked. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people called it the yuppie flu. People rolled their eyes at the hysteria of these women who, you know, dared to have inexplicable symptoms. And at least anecdotally, you absolutely get long COVID patients saying, my doctor doesn't believe me, or my doctor says, you know, I'm fine. But it, it and, and this is, this is my perspective. And this is, you know, anecdotally, it, it, it doesn't seem to be at the same scale that it was before. And I think that is, that is probably the silver lining, if there is one, is hopefully this will get the medical community, including drug companies, to start paying more attention to these conditions. I also know anecdotally, I've talked to uh, scientists who are researching these conditions, and they say that they're having much easier time accessing funds from drug companies than they are from the NIH. So it, it seems that at least some, some of the pharmaceutical companies are paying attention. And when it comes to insurance, I have no idea, but I can't imagine that it's going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because when you have you have a bunch of symptoms, but there's no identifiable cause because you have no viral load anymore, um, that's not the type of thing insurance companies want to pay for. No, they do not. But so that's, that's the medical side. And I mean, that just has to be a priority. You know, going back to the point about human cost. I mean, that is how you alleviate the human cost. The second piece though, you know, and this kind of dovetails a little bit more with everything I was talking about the last time I was on the show, you know, 30 million Americans have no access to any form of paid sick leave. And what that means is when they are sick, they go to work. And that means that whatever they have, they spread. And so it seems like a really obvious time to either mandate, I mean, mandate or mandate and subsidize paid sick leave, especially in industries where workers have to be in person, which, which are often these like low wage service sector jobs. The, the essential workers. The essential <laughs> workers, exactly. Right. They're, they're essential enough that, that they have to work, but not so essential that they get sick, paid sick leave. Well, you know, or like a living <laughs> wage. Um, or a living, yeah. Right. So then the third piece, is from my perspective, employer accommodation. So long COVID, and, and the government's been very good at saying this clearly, long COVID is protected under the Americans with Disabilities Act. I mean, obviously not every case, but it is a disabling condition if it interferes enough with your, with your daily life. Like the government's been very clear on that. I think a lot of patients don't realize they can ask for accommodation. I mean, this is, you know, Again, an anecdote, but I actually have someone on one of my teams who has long COVID and it never occurred to her to ask me for any accommodation. She, she just, she didn't know she could. And so we need better education for patients. We also need better education for employers. You know, A, they need to understand that they don't have a choice. Like if they can legal, if they can accommodate someone without undue burden, they have to. But I think it would be also helpful to, to tell them what other employers are doing, to give them ideas on how to accommodate people, because it's a tricky thing to accommodate. And so I think, and this is actually what I want my, my next piece of research to be on is what are the accommodation strategies that work that enable people to, to keep working? But then finally, like, of course, there is a group of people who you just won't be able to accommodate with, with any kind of employer measures, right? And so this is either people who are so sick, they can't, they just can't work at all, 
or not to you know harp on this, but low wage service workers. It's a great example of take you know a restaurant worker or a retail clerk or a nursing aide at a nursing home. That is an in person, physically demanding job that is shift work, and it is if you have an illness with you know extreme fatigue, physical limitations, unpredictable symptoms, it is really hard to keep doing that job. And so for those people, we really need a safety net, which means they need to be able to access social security disability insurance. And that's a challenge because as we talked about earlier with insurance companies, it's hard to prove that you have long COVID. Exactly. It's just your word that you're suffering from symptoms like fatigue or brain fog, et cetera. Yep. And, you know, going back to the point about medical care, to the extent that you don't have physicians who specialize or, or I mean, who have experience in this, it's also really hard to get a doctor to say unequivocally, yes, this person has long COVID. And so, you know, anecdotally, a, a lot of people, a lot of the patients I spoke to in, in putting together this work have told me that either they haven't applied because, you know, it's, it's a complicated application process. And as you mentioned, a lot of them do have brain fog or they did apply, but they didn't list long COVID. They, they tried to kind of get in under a different diagnosis because they just assumed they would be rejected or they applied mm -hmm. and they were rejected. Okay. Uh, <laughs> to sum up the conversation, <laughs> I know. It, it's a lot of people, mm -hmm. millions. It's a lot of money in lost wages. It's a lot of money in terms of healthcare costs. It is definitely, it must, I mean, well, we started with, with does it, is it worsening the labor shortage? I, I assume the answer is yes from this. Yeah. Yes. It, it must be. Uh, it's a huge impact in terms of quality of life. And it is exposing several big flaws in our safety net, including access to disability, access to health care, uh, access to paid sick leave, particularly for uh, low wage service employees, et cetera. I want to ask you just kind of hot take. We see the economic uh, the we're having, I don't know if you, well, allegedly, <laughs> this has got to be the most confusing recession ever if we're in a recession. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I keep hearing that term and I can sometimes tweet out, you know, worst recession ever sarcastically <laughs> when I look at the job numbers, yeah. really tight labor market, high uh, inflation, uh, well, high inflation compared to what we've been used to the past 25 years, 30 years, mm -hmm. um, wouldn't have looked that outrageous in the 1970s. High, but you know, we've seen they saw worse. We know that COVID is certainly responsible for triggering these economic disruptions. How much, how much of a role do you think long COVID is playing in uh, creating this really weird economy? My belief is that we will figure out over the next year that long COVID is having a measurable impact on what looks to be the scarcity of labor in certain industries. And I think especially when you think about the low-wage service sector, 
where, as I said, these are really hard jobs to do if you're sick. I, I do believe that some percentage of the labor tightness is coming from people dropping out of out of uh, the workforce. And so um, obviously the solution to that is for the Fed to raise interest rates. I mean, it's almost <laughs> certainly going to get people back to work. <laughs> oh, God, it's so crazy. I mean, this is uh, this is a weird economy. It is a, I, I am quickly falling into the nobody knows nothing about nothing school of <laughs> economics. I, I have been there since I first took an economics course undergrad, <laughs> but. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, it's just that it, it is unlike anything we've been in and there's all these things happening at once and uh, it, it's hard to sort it all out, but, but, but clearly, you know, reading and and for folks, we'll we'll put a link in the show notes to uh, Katie's report uh, at Brookings. It it clearly is a real thing. Uh, is there any chance of collecting even better data? Is the is is the Census Bureau or others trying to wrap their minds around this? So my deep hope is that the Census Bureau starts putting questions about long COVID on the current population survey, and my hope is that a report like mine that puts a stake in the ground and says, this is probably about the magnitude we are looking at can help accelerate that, that move. Um, because again, it's just so big. We, unless we want to say, you know what, we know enough, this is, this is huge. Like mm -hmm. let's just throw everything we have at it. You know, we live in a world of finite resources. We need to know exactly how big and exactly what the impact is. And so my, very deep hope is that we see these questions on the on the current population survey in the next year. I'll tell you one thing I've learned, Katie, is I'm uh, I'm not taking my mask off. <laughs> well, <laughs> me either. <laughs> yeah, I, I did not want. I mean, I have a very accommodating employer, and I've mostly been home for the past couple of years, and that's great. But. Uh, uh, I think our conversation would have been a little different were we both suffering from brain fog. That is absolutely true. Uh, have we missed anything? Anything else uh, we need to discuss here? So one last point, it kind of follows up on what you said. You know, recently the CDC, as you guys probably know, changed its guidance on COVID precautions. And it basically switched from a, we will provide guidance that protects population health to you are individually responsible for looking after your own health and making your own risk assessment. And, you know, I, I understand why they would make that switch at this point, but if people are individually responsible for making their own risk assessment, they have to actually understand the risks and the media and frankly, public health focus on severe disease and death, while again, understandable is only part of the story. And I think it is very hard for people to actually assess the risks they are taking if they don't understand what the incidence of long COVID looks like after a COVID infection. Right. A lot of people are like, oh, it's not killing. Well, it is killing people. It is, I mean, it, it is still killing people. It is still killing people at a higher rate than the flu does. Yes. So this, this idea that, ah, oh, it's not killing people anymore. It is. Uh, that's, but that's not what most of us are afraid of. If you're healthy, you're, you know, chances are you're not going to die from it. Mm -hmm. um, but your risk of, of long COVID is actually pretty significant. And 
from everything we know increases with every reinfection. That's right. Yeah, I, uh, it's disheartening because I feel I wear the mask and I see people looking at me disapprovingly, rolling their eyes, and I feel like I'm protecting them and they're not protecting me. So it's, it's one way. It's incredibly discouraging and frustrating. And for, you know, again, the, the long COVID patients I've talked to, I mean, it's just devastating for them to see this, you know, because they know what can happen. And many of them were perfectly healthy, active people. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, I mean, for them, it's like, it's like watching a car crash. Right. Well, it's a shame. Well, thank you for doing that work. And thank you for coming back on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much. On the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we'll be talking with Marshall Steinbaum about student loan forgiveness and the unforgiving attitude towards it by some orthodox economists. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.